Father, we thank you for this time together. We are mindful of um, our need for your work in our hearts to to uh, have your word um, mean something to us. As we study it, we can so often dwell on the intellectual part of what piece of priest's clothing goes where and trip on the links between the curtain and the ephod and the breastpiece and all the different <coughs> symbolism that's there and fail to plead with you for it to affect the heart. We fail to plead with you to move us, to incline our hearts to love your law, to incline our hearts to love your son, to incline our hearts to trust him more and forsake all lesser things. And so, Father, we pray that this morning as we go through this next section in Exodus, that, that you would do that, that you would, by your Spirit, move the heart, not just the head. We thank you for the work that you're doing in us to wash our heads with your word, but also to renew and redeem our emotions so that they are right thoughts, right feelings toward you and each other. Thank you for the work that you've done to make that happen in Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, here we are at the end of chapter 28, and uh, we're wrapping up the uh, discussion, the instructions really, uh, on the clothing that sets apart the high priest. And as we're reading through this, there seems to be a general trend of, of going outside in, a, a layer of clothing that works from the outside back to <clears throat> very much uh, the hidden clothing. So let's look at, um, let's look at verse 31. We're going to go through verse 33 at the end of the chapter. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts, it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother, 
and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. It's a little weird. Lots of different types of detail here. Again, very detailed. Very um, particular. Where's this robe to be worn? Where's the robe to be worn? If we're looking at the layers of clothing, where's the robe go? On Aaron's body. Okay. To the most holy places. Under what? Under the ephod. Under the It's called the robe of the ephod. What color is it? It's blue. Now think about that visually. I'm not an artistic person, but I understand contrast. You have an all blue robe underneath this multicolored stone laden ephod that goes over the top of it. What, what's the picture there? Why would he care? What does it tell you about God that he would design this this way? Thank you for the <laughs> that definite statement. The clarity that you bring is Obviously, the details matter, and uh, I'd be interested to see everything put together and see how it looks. Yeah, it'd be good to have an artist representation of that somehow. I bet Ty has one. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> um, what does it tell you? There is an artistic purpose behind it, yes? What does that tell you about the one who designed it? He's artistic. He's creative. He, what'd you say? He cares about color. He, cares about color. He, he loves beauty and glory. And that's the reference that you see again and again with, these clo with this clothing for beauty and glory. Um, there's to be a hole for the head to go through in this robe. And it's lined with what the ESV translates a, a woven binding. The word that's used there is unique to, to here and also in chapter 39, 23. It's really nowhere else. And it's somewhat obscure. Some of, the, some of the smart folks have translated it uh, to be coat of mail, like it's a military thing, um, which I found interesting. But whatever it is, its purpose is to reinforce that opening so that it doesn't tear as you come through. I mean... <clears throat> And the kids, uh, for a while, were making those little ponchos out of the little soft stuff. And inevitably, the neck, the fleece, yeah, whatever. Uh, inevitably, whatever. The, the, pick your soft stuff. Uh, they made ponchos out. And inevitably, the neck would always get really loose because you punch through, whatever. It's a detail. And it's an insignificant-sounding detail. But if you're going to have a robe that lasts generations... It's kind of important to have a reinforced neck because people have different sized heads, you know. 
who thinks like this? What, what other religious book thinks like this? Puts this out there. The detail in which it is to be made, is, it, it just says a lot, I think, about who we serve. Um, what lines the bottom of this robe? What lines the bottom? Bells and pomegranates. What's a pomegranate? It's a type of fruit, a delicious fruit. You've had one. Oh, I never have. Yeah, but the seeds are delicious. <laughs> Even the seeds are wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so when you leave the tabernacle, you are hungry. Um, so you have this on the bottom of the robe. Um, it's used just as a fruity decoration of the room. I mean, there's... Is there any significance? Well, some of, some, of the, uh, some of the smart guys will say that one, some of the fruit that they brought when the spies brought fruit to Moses, like uh, of the land, of the promised land, pomegranates were among them. So they say, well, this, this is a representation of the fruitfulness of the land that they were promised. and uh, Maybe... Maybe it could be a reminder of, 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 of fruitfulness. I don't know. It, it just, it's decoration. It's just purdy. And that's, I think, I, that's kind of where I land on it. It's just something that is designed for beauty. Um, well, we don't know what that fruit was. And, and everything would be speculation otherwise. So... What, what's, what else is on the hymn? You've got pomegranates bells. and bells. 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 Think how annoying that would be. <laughs> Everywhere you go, there's bells. He's like a little elf walking around at Christmas time. Why would he have... I was going to say elven bells. Why would he have bells on the robe, on the hem of his robe? What was the point of that? So that he won't die. What's the deal with the bells? Why would he die if they don't have bells? That's not why he would die. The bells will prevent him from dying. It's an indication that he's dead. What's going on? Can they see the priest as he goes into the holy place? So visually, nothing. But you can hear him. And they hear him move over to light the lamp to the left. They hear him when he jingles over to the right to <laughs> grab some stuff. And then they shimmy straight on into the holy place. They hear him jingling as he's messing with the cow to do the sprinkle. They hear all this. I haven't heard anything in a while. What? Listen, do you hear it? it? So there's no bell. What does that mean? So, yeah, I don't know. I, I was expecting, Tammy's bringing up a good point. I have, I've heard this, and I haven't seen this, that there apparently was some kind of rope that they tied around the foot. Because if the bell stopped ringing, you don't want to wait another year to send somebody in. That could be bad. Um, yes? So I know what we're commenting on, you know, if the bell stopped ringing, it means he's not moving. Right. Which could mean he's dead. Right. But that's not what it says. What it says is so that he will not die. So that he will die. not die. Now, what's up with that? So are they supposed to, like, they can't run in there. If they hear the bell stop, they get it. Are they supposed to drag him out of there? 
That's apparently that was the custom. That's what I hear. I've never seen that in scripture. Yeah, to me it seems like that, that it's not saying that the bells keep him alive, but the obedience of, of following what God is setting up. I, I mean, that, that's what's implied. He, here's, here's, some of the, here's a quote from one of the smart folks. The tinkling bells, that just sounds so... Anyway, the tinkling bells were presumably so that the people outside could trace the movements of the priest within, who was, of course, invisible to them. By this they would know that his offering had been accepted and that he had not been struck dead. But it says that the, the bells announce before the Lord when the high priest comes in and when he goes out so that he may not die. What's the point of that? Does God not know the calendar that he set up and when the high priest is supposed to go in there, that he needs to be reminded by bells? What's the point of that? What does that show? The, uh, it is, well, I thought it was a very profound insight on your part. Um, the, the issue is that in the ancient Near East, when you approached a king, you came before the king in very fine clothes, dressed to the nines, black tie affair going to the king, and you were announced. If you came in, remember Esther, she came in unannounced. If you go in unannounced, that is a that is a it's a breach of protocol, so to speak, and you can be struck down for that coming unannounced. Here, God is displaying His majesty, His sovereignty. Don't come to me unannounced, and we'll put bells. So that we're not going to have a guy in there with a trumpet blasting the high priest is coming because nobody goes in there but the high priest. But we'll do it this way: you come in announced. It, it impresses upon them the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God. It's, this is his court. You are coming before his throne. Don't come unannounced. Um, all right. Here's, here's, here's something a little strange, I think. Look at verse 36. He gives... Next, the instructions for the headwear of the high priest and begins with its most important feature, which is what? This plate on his head. That's inscripted with something. What is it? Holy to the Lord is written, is placed, is placarded on his forehead. What does that mean? He's walking around with this, with this engraved, and it says, literally, the language is, the plate, its root meaning is to shine or to sparkle. This thing is supposed to be noticed. Is this like a headband that straps around like a light? It's, in other places, this is called, <laughs> it's not like one of those things you get at Lowe's with the light, no. Um, it, it's, it is, in other places, called a, a crown of, uh, of, of glory. If I'm right, if I'm reading that right. It says it's fastened by a cord of blue, so there's a turban, and then there's a cord holding the plate at the front of the turban. Yeah, it's called a holy crown. Other places it's called a holy crown. I couldn't find the reference. Um, yes, and it's a crown, but not like every other crown that you have that goes all the way around your head. It's it's just somehow fastened on the on the forehead. 
it's not like a full crown, it's just a partial, what was it, tiara? Yeah, right, it doesn't say how it's done, but it's not, it's not like a full crown, it's a, it's a, it didn't extend uh, on the whole head. So, they're to engrave it with great care and with detailed attention, like with the stones on the ephod and the breastpiece, but this has the inscription, holy to the Lord. Why is this here? That seems very odd to me that you would have to wear something on your head. It seems kind of like a stamp of property a little bit. Like this, the purpose of of me and the purpose of of what I'm doing now is holy to the Lord. What does that mean, holy? Set apart. Set apart, distinct, it ain't common. And it probably signifies something, don't you think? About what the high priest is doing. Who is he? What is he doing? He's a representative. He's a representative of whom? Everybody? The people of Israel. He's wearing their names on his shoulders. He's wearing the tri- names of the tribes all over his heart. And he has on his head as a signifying um, stamp, holy to the Lord, separate to the Lord, sanctified to the Lord, a holy people. Right? Not everybody. He didn't go in there representing Babylonians. He doesn't go in there representing uh, uh, um, the Greeks the, or Germans at that time. You know. he, he goes in there representing Israel. He's very distinct as their federal head. Right? You understand federalism as being a representative form of government. That's what he's doing. He bears the weight of them in this act. And he goes in very somberly, very intentionally uh, representing the people in his best clothing that God has designed, by the way, and announcing that he's coming in a way that God has designed, by the way. So... um, these, these people that, that are set apart from all others, they're, they're kind of chosen. Kevin? Yeah. <clears throat> That's interesting you say, but the, you said that uh, <clears throat> there's a specific design, there's a specific dress, mm-hmm. the bells at the very bottom, mm-hmm. um, and what you're saying there, that he comes in representing one person or one group. People. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm assuming that the instructions for his dress were only given to one group of people. Right? To the, to the priesthood. So, yeah. in a sense, it only allows one group of people to come in. So, right. well, Babylonians and those other people can't come in because they'd be... Sure, but they're... Lo- they, wouldn't have the, they wouldn't have... They wouldn't know. How to dress and how to come in. Right. And, that, and, and you see, too, later on in the history of Israel, when foreigners come into the temple, what a huge blight that was in the mindset of Israel. Only those chosen of God could go in. And the way he prescribed, and to go in and, as uh, Antiochus Epiphanes will do in, in uh, early BCs, uh, right before the time of Christ, he, he sacrifices a pig in the temple, and and uh, goes in not dressed like this, uh, which is a huge blasphemous thing for him to do. He oh, absolutely, he did. He did it to desecrate the the religion of the Jews. 
so you have this gold plate attached to the turban of the high priest's head. And the turban that's, that's discussed here in the language is always used for the high priest, except in one instance where the word for um, uh, the, the, the turban is, uh, is used to uh, denote royalty, which I find very interesting. Um, it never signifies the headwear of the ordinary priesthood. That's a different word. He also talks about the high priest bearing any guilt. The idiom that's used here literally is, will lift up the iniquity. Will lift up the iniquity. So in some sense, the high priest, uh, as representative of all Israel, will incur the responsibility for the sins of Israel. And he'll, he'll take on, symbolically, their sin and then make sacrificial atonement for them. See any connections? See, is it just, it's so vague and subtle. Yeah. Right, right, good, and that's a good point, and that's what the author of Hebrews talks about, um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. You're exactly right. God, God provides the manner in which you bear the guilt. God provides the manner in which you atone for the guilt through the through the clothing, through the separateness, through all of the the um, the, the different uh, furniture and all of that. Go ahead. Right. It it's not something he was born out, with. It was outside of him, but it was like he was almost being stamped with. Right. Holy of the Lord. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Checking off of what you said, I was thinking about this and how everything is described, and it's it's from two different perspectives, from the world's perspective or even from an American perspective. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. He would look like a complete idiot. Mm. He's got this thing on his head. He's got pomegranates and bells. He's dressed in this. Kind of girly robe thing, and he's got stones and not not very Western dress, is it? <laughs> so, but here, here's my point: is to the to the human that looks stupid, it looks foolish. It to looks a Westerner, it looks stupid. But um, but I'm not big on knickers what, either. That's what the Christian mindset is: is is kind of to look foolish, mm-hmm. is to preach the foolishness of the gospel, is okay. to die daily is to give up ourself to yeah. represent Christ. And I understand what you're saying. From from our perspective, that is foolish. From their perspective, that's beautiful. Well, and in Middle Eastern culture, not just Israel, this this is a this is a common way to, to dress. But wasn't not, it Well, there's some of that, but there are, are also just the common dress of the people. They had turbans, they had robes, they had levels of. But yes, there was the, the some religions they had the whole neko thing going on. But um, but but but, but <laughs> thank you for because uh, we're about to get to that here in a second, and I just want to get through it. Um, so, but you have but you have a representation using the cultural norm of something more than the cultural norm. That, that takes on the symbolic of representative, of, of holiness, of beauty, of glory. 
And then he continues, and ultimately you have it to where he is accepted before the Lord, not just for himself, but for all of Israel. And the plate serves as this perpetual reminder that all Israel has been set apart and is accepted because of the work of the atonement of the high priest. That's holy to the Lord. All right. 39 through 43, you have a continuation of the outside-in type description. It talks about this checkered coat. And, and given the customs of the time, it may have been some clothing that reached to the palms and soles of the wearer. You know, the palms of their hands, to the soles of their feet. It's, but again, this is underneath the, the ephod rope. So you get the blue thing, and then you got this checkered thing underneath that. So it's like long well, sorry? So it's like long Maybe. That well, yeah, I think maybe that's probably close. It's linen. It's linen. It's decorative. It's dec- very decorative. You said you said you got the blue thing and the checkered thing underneath. Underneath it, yeah. So we're going outside in with the layers of clothes. The ephod is on the outside. No, he danced in an ephod only. Well, there you go. I have here in my uh, 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 formerly nicotine-stained hands the um, – I'm kidding, I never – but you have a representation of, of, uh, of the priest, and uh, this looks really cool. I wish you could see it, um, of the ephod and the, and the, and the, and the robe and, the, and the everything. So, yeah. Is that checkered thing that's on the outside? No, no, no. It's on the inside. It's underneath the robe. You just really can't see it. Um, it says in, in 40 uh, – uh, 39. You should wear uh, checker work, a coat in checker work of fine linen. Okay, the translation. A little different on yours? Um, so you have this outside end description that continues that. The language suggests that this checkered robe is an exquisite piece of clothing, but it is to be worn underneath the robe mentioned above. You have ephod, robe, checkered coat. Flannel graph, okay. I was thinking of the girls' ponchos, but that's fleece, not flannel. Okay, the turban uh, we discussed before, there's this sash in which there was some type of, basically it's some type of girdle that's worn on the coat. And then you have uh, all of this under the robe. What Was it just the high priest that had these attributes of his clothing, this turban, sash, coat thing going on? The next, on the 40s, is Aaron's tunic sash. Are they the same thing? But they, they didn't have the robe and the ephod. They didn't have the robe and the ephod. And what, they, what, what do they have? Coats and sashes and caps. Not the same headdress as the high priest. They're dressed similar looking stuff, but not the same stuff. And it, notice it's still for beauty and glory. The sons of Aaron uh, were to have coats and sashes and caps, but it's not majestic like the turban, but it's still beautiful. It's not a crown, though. Um, and then 41, we'll kind of pass over because we're going to get into that more detailed in chapter 29. But this is where they're first, you get the, kind of the initial description of the ordination ceremony. They're going to be clothed first, and then they'll be anointed with oil, set apart as a, as a, as a sign of them being set apart for the service of high priest. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 29. What's with the holy underwear? Well, let's just bring it out, throw it out there. What is with the holy underwear? This is so Mormon sounding. What 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 is with that? The first thing that I thought of when I read this was I thought of in the garden whenever they ate the fruit, people they realized that they could miss and learn to cover themselves. 
Ah, very interesting. Jeffrey made a connection with the Garden of Eden after the apple or fruit or pomegranate or whatever it was was eaten. They realized that they were naked, naked, East Texas, naked, and that's how. And that what's that word? And then that and then God covered them to hide nakedness, nakedness. That that is that is part of the fall that we're no longer covered. And so here you have. Um, what is mentioned very lastly, because it is the innermost clothing, uh, and this is only referenced in respect to the priesthood. I mean, we don't hear about, we're never given that, that other people wore these little linen uh, undergarment things. Um, and, and it also points back to, remember the law in, in chapter 20, verse 26, where he says, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may uh, be not exposed on it. There's this idea. I think you're right. I think it goes back to the garden where you have the, the nakedness of man being a sign of his fallenness. If the priest fails to, we- fails, fails, fails to wear these, he's guilty of a lack of modesty and worship, and he would die. And that's, that's the statement. Capital punishment, you don't wear this linen undergarment stuff. Let that sink in as you think about how we worship God. Modesty and worship. Dosi do down the aisle. Modesty and worship. He prescribes how it's done. He prescribes what they wear. He prescribes the procedures in which they are, are glorifying him, or they, they are to come to him. Do we take worship that seriously? Yes, ma'am. They do reading this. Think about that. Everybody knows what I'm wearing. But they wouldn't know whether or not they're actually That's why they had the rope to the leg, I guess. That would be another reason to, to wear the bells and the rope. What I'm saying is that isn't that for us kind of like we can show up to church dressed up on the outside, but if we haven't set right what's underneath? Yeah. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, Peter says. Yeah, good. All right. In our passage today, we see that the Israelite high priest was set apart to bear the sins of the people and his own. He had to be holy before he walked in. He had to be atoned for before he walked in, or he'd die. He would come before the Lord in an unworthy manner. He would be um, naked in his sin, so to speak. But it was all a symbol. He symbolically took on the responsibility for the sins of all Israel and made sacrifices on their behalf. Setting aside that, that, that proverb that calls gray hair a crown of glory, turn to Hebrews 2.7. Turn to Hebrews 2.7. Hebrews, of course, is the natural place to go when we talk about this topic. It just seems to roll off the tongue. Let's go to Hebrews when we're talking about the priesthood. Hebrews 2.7 You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, 
was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Christ takes on the shiny crown because only he can truly wear it. And in doing so, fully represents his people. Hebrews 7, flip over a few pages, 7.26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. I don't care who the high priest was in the glory days of Israel. There is no high priest that would fit this mold. They were all um, not innocent. Only Christ can truly wear the crown. And exalted above the heavens, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. No daily mass for Christ. For, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself one time. This isn't a symbol. Jesus actually and really takes on the sins of his people. Uh, it's been said this way, his sacrifice is representative, but it is not symbolic. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice, too, in that statement of Paul, the particularity for whom that exchange is made. For our sake. For our sake. It's a real lifting up of our sins, all of them. And if we put our trust solely in Him and what He has done, we are accepted and anointed for service. He requires things of us to be fit for service, doesn't He? And everything He requires, He provides. How do we know what He requires? We study His Word. What is required goes to the core of who we are, to the nakedness in the heart that no one else but God sees, and he covers it. Moreover, out of that change in the heart, because of the covering with garments uh, that are a gift and a requirement, we are being made truly holy to the Lord from the heart, from what would be at the core, the source of our nakedness before God. He covers it. And makes it holy. He bore the guilt and the punishment for his people that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice the particularity with which he does it. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? It's a work in progress. Peter says it this way, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We receive the crown because he bore it for us. Really, not symbolically. Really. And he's crowned us with his crown.
with his holiness to the Lord. So trust him. Yeah? You know, think about the particulars with all of the, the dress and everything. There's orderliness and uh, purpose in it, and there's mm. also beauty in it. Mm. And that's how God made the world. He made it orderly with laws and by design, and he made it very beautiful. Mm. And so, it, I mean, it's, it's only fitting that the God of the universe that did make everything would make it and make it this way for the priest to approach him. And he requires that of us to be people who are ordered and not chaotic. People who have our lives dedicated in a um, sacrificial way for purpose, not haphazard and chaotic. And all of life is temple work, right? We talked about that uh, many moons ago. Um, yeah. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Ha, huh, interesting. interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Maybe. I'll have to look into that. Because, um, because you think about it, whenever the, the angels are in heaven, the picture that we see of the throne room in heaven, the, the cherubim that are there have the six wings. There's one covering their eyes, there's one, fly, two, one pair covering their eyes, one pair flying, and one pair covering their feet, covering their creatureliness. And so I don't know, is there feet? Do they, are they covered? Oh, I was gonna okay, I thought you found it. No, no, no. Okay. It was whenever Moses, Moses approaches the burning bush, is not he, isn't he, he asked to take his, take his sandals off because it's holy ground? Yeah, that's true. I, that's a good point. We'll have to look into that. I would imagine they'd be barefooted. Well, maybe, maybe. Sure. Their ankles sure. Some of yeah, so shoes would get all and sloshy. They couldn't lift it. Yeah. To keep it out of That's blood. true. Because yeah, because of the weight of the blood. Maybe it is barefoot. Maybe. Uh, I know, too, the pictures that you see of judgment, it's always of the crushing of grapes with the feet. His feet are stained with the blood of those that he's conquering and in judgment for. So maybe there's the symbolic reference there, too, of, of, of the, the, the judgment of God on sin. And, and I mean, there could be all kinds of things there, but I don't know. I haven't seen it. It's a very interesting question. Also, I don't know what your book is there, but at the end, during the consecration of the priests, all of those garments that they worked so hard to make get sprinkled with blood. Yeah. And that's what makes it holy. Yeah. I mean, who knows how drink shit looks Right. Right. Is it the high priest that goes in there once a year that's wearing all this stuff that does the sacrifices? I thought they did the sacrifices in the outer thing. He carries it in. Clothes, yeah, he carries it in. And the high priest changes into good clothes and carries he it in. Yeah, he sprinkles it in the, whole, in the Holy of Holies. And I'm, I'm not sure we'll get there. I haven't, I haven't quite nailed down exactly where that, that sacrifice of the bull takes place. I would think it would take place on the altar out in the holy place and then taken into the Holy of Holies. But some statements I've heard have been, and again, I haven't seen in Scripture, but just other people recounting what happened, I've seen to indicate there may be some type of sacrifice within the Holy place, the holy of Holies itself. And I, I don't know if that's true. I, didn't, I just haven't got there yet to really 
nail that down. Yeah. So he takes the sacrifice in and he sprinkles it in the holy, the most holy place. On the on the on the Ark of the Covenant. Then At the mercy seat. It, then he has to clean everything. Why? There's some kind of uh, some kind of cleanliness thing. I mean, there there, there are. Yeah, he only goes in once, once a year. year. Maybe he doesn't, and maybe that's also the point. I don't know. We'll get there. We'll get there when we get to we get to those kinds of things in the in, in, in later on how the how the sacrifices work. Um, so, all right. Anything else? Anything else? Right, and right. And doesn't it somewhere say if we're part of a royal priesthood? Mm-hmm. So we too are prepared We're prepared for, for priesthood to serve as to be anointed for consecrated to, for service as well. And it's, it's royal priesthood, which is why I thought the, the idea of the crown was one time in Scripture being used as a, as a royalty kind of, kind of thing. Uh, let me pray. Let's go ahead and pray. We're, we're running a little long here. In our weakness, Lord, you've, you've done an amazing thing. You have condescended to us to give us a living picture of what Christ is to us. And the, um, the descriptions we have of the, the high priest of Israel, we see our greater high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and yet familiar with our weakness. He's familiar with our um, struggles and our um, not only pain of, of, of the guilt of sin, but, but also the pain of just life in a fallen world. He's familiar with that, and yet without sin. And you took him who knew no sin and made him to bear our sin, to be sin, it says, for us that we might attain the unthinkable, that we might be the righteousness of God. What an incredible thing. Lord, that should evoke in us a profound sense of thankfulness. And we don't have hearts that do that naturally. So we pray that you, by your Spirit, would incline our hearts toward thankfulness for what you've done for us in Christ. We pray all these things in His name. Amen.